Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'll be speaking with Arlindo Oliveira, the author of The Digital Mind, How Science is Redefining Humanity. Arlindo Oliveira is president of Instituto Superior Tecnico, Tecnico Lisboa, where he is also professor in the computer science and engineering department. Arlindo Oliveira, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Hello, how are you? Early on in your book, The Digital Mind, How Science is Redefining Humanity, you talk about raising the public awareness about the social and political consequences of the existence of non-biological minds. So is it fair to say that one reason public awareness needs to be raised is the not inconsiderable possibility that this may occur much more quickly than we think? Yeah, I think such a possibility always exists, but I believe changes will occur over a period of decades, probably not in a few years. But the fact is that society needs decades, sometimes centuries, to adapt to significant changes in, in its social structure. And in fact, it took many decades for modern society to emerge out of the Industrial Revolution. So it may take one generation or more to adapt to the changes of this new technological revolution. So the sooner we start, the better the chances we'll find a good model, I believe. Um, it seems that the core of this book, at least as I read it, is the contention that the power of algorithms, particularly in the areas of machine learning and bioinformatics, could lead to these revolutionary changes in how humanity understands both the nature of the mind and what intelligence is. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I believe it is a fair statement. Uh, uh, we are used to believe that intelligence, mind, and consciousness are uniquely human properties. I believe this commonly accepted perception may well change in a few decades as increasingly intelligent systems become commonplace and erase the boundaries between human and non-human behavior. So I think you're right that it's, 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 it's the main point of the book, I believe. One of the things later on the book you talk about is that that really that hard division between intelligence and conscience. After all, you know, if people have an, an, an AI agent like Siri or, or the Google AI agent, people are beginning to interact with a limited intelligence, but there still is no really consciousness there. It's still really hard for people to accept that, okay, this is a person. In this book, is there a dividing line, I guess, a dividing line of definitions between what is an intelligence and what is a conscience? And I understand this is probably a much bigger issue that I'm making it out to be philosophically, but, but where are people currently drawing the line and, will, and how might that line change? Yeah, I believe that is really, in fact, a very deep issue. As you know, consciousness is still an open question for most philosophers and scientists. Uh, uh, and, and actually, the, the, that issue weights very heavily on whether we attribute intelligence to a system or to uh, someone or not. Uh, however, my personal belief is that consciousness is, um, is a, a much um, more superficial thing that we tend to believe. It's something that once systems get smart enough, and if they are programmed in the right way, they will exhibit some behavior that will treat as conscious. So uh, I, 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 I think consciousness is not that deep a thing, and is something that is probably will, will be exhibited by systems in up to some way enough at least for us to attribute them volition and and uh, and even personhood in some cases. Now, you have a varied background. You've worked in computers. You have a background in neuro, neuroscience. You uh, talk about brain science in this book. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, that, I don't want to say the, the, where in biology, when we're talking about the brain, current things that are going on within 
science and technology that's good at that's leading you to think that okay we're getting better at mapping what a human brain is and how it develops what we think of as the mind and where we could be going with it well in terms of brain sciences i think we are still very far from understanding how the thing works but to be fair if we and and some people uh, wrote about this if you were to try to understand how a computer works by doing using the same techniques as you use to understand the brain we will also not be able to understand how a computer works, right? I mean, we are very limited in the in the in the instrumentation that we can make about the brain. So I think we we understand a lot about the details. We also understand the general behavior of the brain, but in the middle is the real complexity. And I think in that respect, we are uh, far from understanding it. In fact, I even believe that we may never be able to understand in detail how the brain works. We may understand the general principles well enough to reproduce it, well enough to simulate it, but maybe we'll never understand how the brain works. In the same way that we don't really understand all the details on how a computer works. We only understand the general architecture and, and the code that was put in there. So, Now, I've done several books for the MIT Press about Alan Turing, and it seems that as time goes on, people are really begin. I mean, obviously, his work at Bletchley Park and his work in mathematics in that subfield, in, well, actually called mathematics subfield, in that field, people knew that Turing was one of the great giants of the 20th century. But I get a sense from your book that as we go further into these questions about what a digital mind is, that Alan Turing's work is going to be seen more and more as one of the foundational things of our future society, along with, say, a Charles Darwin. Could you talk a little bit about what Turing's work means to digital minds as we go forward? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think Turing is remarkable that a guy that lived so uh, so uh, a long time ago by now, and that which was at the very beginning of the computer revolution. I mean, it was a time when almost there were no computers. Had such a clear view of what computation is, and that is his major contribution. But also what intelligent is, and and how, how you could. I mean, Turing test, which has been so discussed and some people deem so superficial, is really, I believe, a very deep understanding, is, is, is a, an unbiased way of assessing whether something is intelligent or not. And, and I agree with you that, in fact, that Turing has, I mean, he had the vision to understand this, not only to create a, an abstract model of computation that has been so influential, but also of understanding uh, things that even now, 70 years later, many people are still not uh, seeing clearly that the only way, I mean, you, you have to use something like a Turing test. You cannot go inside and see how it works because you'll never understand how it works. You have to do something like that. And I think in that respect, Turing's vision was really very influential and will remain as a hallmark of, of, of the, the major contribution in computer science. Um, you talk about evolution in this book, and you uh, use one of the uh, examples from Daniel Dennett, his discussion about evolution, thinking about evolution as an algorithm. Um, working in the rooms of digital mind, I was kind of curious where, if if we think about evolution as an algorithm, and that the replicators are human genes, and then the fact that bodies we walk around in are just the current solution that genes have come up with to replicate themselves, if we start talking about digital minds, you talk about biological versus synthetic minds or other other possibilities as we go into the future, what is it that's trying to replicate itself by becoming a digital mind if it's no longer biological genes? Well, I mean, the minds, the biological minds, 
the, it's not the mind that replicate themselves, right? It's the replicators, it's the algorithm that is, is, is using these replicators to somehow create the things that are better at surviving this. That is what creates minds. So in, in, in the digital world, I mean, the minds are, will also be the result of whatever uh, is more stable, whatever reproduces more strongly. Uh, we can we can either duplicate biological mind by copying them in some way, and in that way we'll just be finding a better a better hardware uh, 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 for to run minds. That is one way. But we can also assume that as as there are more and more computer power available, the smarter systems will duplicate. I mean, more people will use the the smarter systems, the better systems, and those will will become get richer and smarter. And in 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 the end, you get you also get that sort of race in the digital world. But but really the, the main point is that the computational support that we had before was biological, was DNA, were the genes, but now we, can, we get other supports and those other supports can in many ways reproduce that behavior that until then was found only in DNA. And and the, and the, the idea that the, that Dennett, I think I, I, I read it on Dennett's book, but the idea that uh, the evolution is just an algorithm that happens to use DNA and RNA and so on. Is I think it's a very powerful one. So it's just another computational support for running algorithms. Now we have digital machines and they are faster, they are more robust, but uh, but they still have a, a lot to go before they completely replace the biological version, which is has been working for four billion years. So the book, the first nine chapters of the book, really get into the science behind the methods that could be used, say, in the next decades, the next century, to develop these digital minds. But it's in the last two chapters where you take a break from the science and begin to look at more of the kind of the sociological and political issues behind what this means. And I have to say, you know, it's it's very easy nowadays for people to to kind of go in one of two directions, either to say this is a uh, this is going to be a golden utopia in which so many issues are going to be resolved and we won't really have to work anymore and all these other things. And of course, there's the flip side where this could turn into an absolute disaster uh, and that humans are going to, in their greed and quest for power, end up creating something that will end up destroying humanity. You didn't really come out one way or the other on this. Um, but can I tell you a metaphor that kind of like I got through your book and it's going to sound weird as you keep talking about the way that minds could end up undeveloped and the fact that as the digital mind continues to develop, there might be a sense of those intelligences moving farther and farther away, not only from humans being able to understand what their intelligence are, but also people not really being that interested anymore in the physical world. In some way, it's almost like we'd be, and this is my words, creating new Greek gods. These intelligences that might be out there aren't that interested in humanity and seem to have powers that we don't completely understand. Admittedly, that is one reading and not the only way this book goes. But can you understand how someone like me might read this book and come to that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, and, and in fact, the last chapter of the book is called Speculations has a few musings on, on that possibility. I mean, the, the more radical possibility is that all this biological stuff was just the bootstrap for a more advanced support for intelligence, right? I mean, this is, this is I admit, a far-fetched possibility, but we have to keep in mind that it is a possibility. Uh, and of course, if that happens, it may happen as you say, right? I mean, we, we this intelligence or whatever comes out of this 
live in their own universe and they may not even care much about the, the biological world and the earth and the environment and so on. That is one possibility in, in, the, in the far future. Yeah, the other possibility is that uh, uh, these artificial intelligence evolve uh, together with us, they become our partners and we all live together in a world that is the physical world, but augmented with these, these computational possibilities. I think this is much more reasonable and, understand, and understandable for us now. Uh, but it may, I mean, in the long, my point is that in the long run, let's say 10,000 years from now, there is no way to tell, right? I mean, if you go 10,000 years back, you could not possibly imagine the world we have now. So uh, the, my point is that 10,000 years in the future is really hard to to project what humanity will be, what the Earth will be, what the, the, our region of the universe will be. And in that respect, I, I believe you are right. I mean, those far-fetched possibilities are, are a real possibility. But but in the end, uh, it may not be as strange as that, right? I mean, if you imagine a guy from 10,000 years ago, and if you told him that we had planes and cars and computers, you could not understand. So in the same way, we do not understand. We have no way of understanding what humanity or whatever comes out of humanity uh, will be in 10,000 years from now. I think that's the, the main point of my book. That's what I tried to project in the last chapter with limited success, I believe, because there is no way to really to really make that prediction. Well, finally, I do want to end the chapter before that. I mean, if somebody's listening, think, well, why am I worried about what we could be having 10,000 years from now? Chapter 10 does talk about things a little bit more prosaic and certainly issues that could crop up by the end of the century. Um, I'll pick one, property. It would be weird for people to think that something in the digital mind could own property, but you point out that, in fact, this is very much a possibility that could be in the future and that there are legal issues. Actually, let me, instead of property, the very basic idea of a citizen. I mean, if we begin to say, okay, well, if you're right and consciousness ends up being something not quite as deep as we may think, and that if we could come up with something that had a high level of actionable intelligence, a lot of areas, perhaps it would develop what we consider a conscious. If we think of that now as a digital person, people have rights and responsibilities. Um, are these discussions that you're, I mean, I, the, yours is obviously the first book I've read about this, but where do you think... I'm trying to say, I'm trying to come up with a way for somebody's listening to this thinking, you know what? I like the way this is saying. I want to go read the book, but what's actually being done now? Is it still more or less, I want to say, an open field that people are just beginning to discuss this? Or are there organizations that people are trying to think, okay, well, how can we shape the debate politically and sociologically going forward so the people who are, say, in 20 to 30 to 50 years along the line in positions of political power are aware that this is an issue? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the question of personhood is probably a central one here, right? I mean, we, we, we got used to the fact that corporations can have property, right? Companies, corporations and other institutions have some uh, personhood and can hold property and also have rights and responsibilities. Of course, corporations are, are, are always held by humans in the end or by, maybe through other corporations and through other companies, but we are used to that. We are still not used and we are not discussing the fact that there may be an agent that may become um, responsible enough to, to, to have personhood, right? To, to have rights, to have property, to have responsibilities. But I think 
that is something that we should probably discuss. And in fact, the European Parliament has been discussing that. And there's been this, and there is a document that was approved a few months ago on, I mean, they discuss robots and so on, but the, the basic principle is the same, whether robots should be registered, whether robots should be considered as, as property of someone or should be given autonom, autonom, autonomous personhood. So I think that that debate is starting to happen now. What I try to do in that chapter, chapter 10, I believe, is in fact discuss that. Uh, and as we as we are used to have companies holding property and having personhood, I believe we may we may have to get used to systems, to intelligence systems, robots or smart agents or whatever, having at least some rights, at least some limited personhood. I mean, we already attribute some limited rights to animals, right? They are not things. They are not persons. Uh, maybe we, maybe there is some uh, some middle term there that that we can uh, use to, for, for the first systems to show up, and then that will give us a way to think about the future there. I tell you, it's a, it's a fascinating, very thought-provoking book, and thank you for writing it. Arlindo Oliveira, the author of The Digital Mind, How Science is Redefining Humanity. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. It was a pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2017, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.